You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey, it's Motley Fool Money co-host Dylan Lewis here. If you're listening to us, it's because you love following the stock market and learning about business stories. If you're looking to keep learning and unlocking your potential, then you should check out the Think Fast, Talk Smart podcast produced by our friends over at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. Think Fast, Talk Smart is the Webby Award-winning best business podcast that's received nearly 43 million downloads and is the number one career podcast in 95-plus countries, so you know it's worth your time. Each week, host and Stanford lecturer Matt Abraham sits down with experts to discuss the best tips to hone and develop your communication skills, from making small talk that leaves a big impression, to keeping your nerves in check while speaking, to being more persuasive. Whether you're working on your elevator pitch or planning an important meeting, Strong communication skills are important in business and life in general. That's why you'll hear from pros like neuroscientist Andrew Huberman on how to manage speaking anxiety, as well as speechwriter, best-selling author, and friend of the fool Dan Pink on how to take risks in your communication, and psychologist Kelly McGonigal on how to harness nervous energy to fuel powerful presentations. All that and so much more available on the Think Fast Talk Smart podcast. So what are you waiting for? Listen every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube. What do you get when you take two childhood friends with a passion for unexplored history and a whole lot of booze? You get us, Queen's Podcast. And here at Queen's, we are spilling the tea on all kinds of women from history. From New Orleans voodoo queen, Marie Laveau, to Marie Antoinette, and everything in between. Each queen is paired with a cocktail recipe that will totally get you in the mood to hear the fun, dramatic, and juicy stories of fascinating women from history. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Cheers! Hey everyone, I'm Jean Chatsky. Thank you so much for joining us today on Her Money. I want you to know that this is the last episode of Her Money that will drop before we head into what I know will be an amazing new year. And I just want to start this show by saying thank you. Thank you so much to all of our listeners who make this show possible every day. We love hearing from you. We love your feedback, your mailbag questions, your show topic suggestions, and we can't wait to tackle this new year with you by our sides as we have done for five years now, soon to be six. And on that note, I also want to extend a very, very special thank you to the sponsor of the Her Money podcast, Fidelity Investments. As our longtime listeners know, they have been the sponsor of this show since we launched back in 2016. We could not have done it without them. I am so grateful to Fidelity, to the wonderful team at Fidelity, particularly to the wonderful women at Fidelity for all that they have done for us. And it is truly bittersweet to announce that this is the last episode that Fidelity will be sponsoring on this leg of the Her Money journey. In our first episode of 2022, I'll introduce you to our new sponsor and give you some details on a new partnership that I'm really excited about. But for right now, I just want to express our deepest gratitude to everyone at Fidelity who made this show possible, including Abby Johnson, Kathy Murphy, and Alexandra Tosig, all of whom championed it, to Lorna Capista, Viesha Sadowski, Courtney Gillen, and Michelle Tessier, and everyone else who helped us bring it to life 
every single week. Finally, a big thank you to Kristen Darcy Robinson, who more than a half decade ago hunkered down with me in a coffee shop on 45th Street and started the brainstorm that would become this show. You all have been wonderful partners. I am thrilled, as I know Catherine is, to consider you friends. And I truly feel that we have all been part of something very, very special together. For me, change is never something that has been easy. I know this is a big one and we will miss you so much. And on that note, this is just one example of the many, many evolutions that can happen in a new year. New sponsors, new jobs, new homes, new babies. There are so many of us who are looking at 2022 and hope that it will be the fresh and vibrant start that we have been waiting for. So today, I want to start by looking within, not within yourself, although that is always a good idea, but I'm talking about looking within your home within your apartment, within your space, whatever it is you call it. If 2020 was the year that we all looked for new real estate, then 2021 was the year we all just got sick of looking at our space. And I'm going to challenge all of you here, everyone listening, in the last week of this year to make 2022 the year that you truly finally clean up, organize, declutter, and maybe make a little profit on those things you no longer need. On my recent move from the New York suburbs to an apartment in Philly, I knew I had my work cut out for me because not only was I moving, I was downsizing and I was downsizing in a major way. I worked with a professional organizer to help me get organized, clean out my clutter, decide what to donate, what to sell, and to do it all without going crazy. And I realized after working with her that we all need this because there is nothing better than a space that is truly welcoming and in order. I am so happy to be joined today by professional organizer Anna Bauer, founder of Sorted by Anna in New York City. Over the years, she has helped thousands of clients break up with their clutter and regain peace in their homes. Anna, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. So what is behind all this clutter? Why do we keep all these things that we know we don't need and how do we move past it? Sure. I often think that there are many reasons why we keep the things um, that we may not need, whether it's sentimental attachments, maybe we paid a lot of money for the, the item, or even just the guilt of giving something away, especially if it's a gift. I, I think when we take a step back and start asking ourselves questions like, why we have something, you know, when was the last time I used it, etc. We can begin to be a bit more conscious of the items that we truly want versus the items we're justifying keeping. You know, I'm a big believer in if you have to justify keeping something, it's likely that you don't need it. So when you say take a step back, you're distancing yourself from that clutter. You're trying to let go of the sentimentality. You're trying, I mean, boy, you tapped into me right away, laser focused. (laughs) When I pay too much for something, and I know I've paid too much for something, even if I haven't worn it in a really long time, it is so hard for me to part with. Mm -hmm. We have clients in the same situation as you, and I'm sure many of the listeners as well. It feels like the guilt of feeling wasteful 
And then on top of that financially wasteful, I think really hinders us from being able to look at something very objectively. And I think by taking a step back and asking ourselves these questions, it helps to kind of peel back the onion of what's at the root of why you're keeping something. So I'd love to go room by room and sort of talk about where the problem areas that you tend to see are. (laughs) But before we get there, I mean, these questions are fascinating. So why do I have this? What other questions do I need to ask myself? If you're working on trying to edit any of your clothing, it could be, when's the last time I wore this? Is this representative of my current style and where I am at at life right now, especially When we're working with a lot of new moms, it can feel like you're in this gray area of having things that used to fit you, but not sure where you might be headed next in terms of your new body. Or it can even be, you know, if you're working in your kid's space, figuring out, are these things that my kids will really need? Have they grown out of them? Do they truly play with them? Or am I keeping it because it represents a memory? Things like that. All right. So let's go room by room and let's get specific and as tactical as possible. And let's start in the closet because I think (laughs) the closet is painful for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. What do you do when you organize a closet and how do you decide what to get rid of? Sure. So when we're working with clients, the thing that we'll do first is empty everything out. If you're working on just a master closet or dresser, you're focusing on one kind of area, whether it is the dresser, closet, under bed storage, anything like that. You take everything out because we often feel visually stuck in how we've probably set something up. And being able to empty a space and see it clear allows us to reimagine the possibilities, reimagine how we could set it up for success versus constantly feeling like there's no other way I could arrange my closet. There's no other way I can get rid of the clutter. So by taking things out and then creating our categories, what is our keep? What is our donate? What's our resell? And what is just trash? No one's going to get any use out of it. So how do we decide what goes in those categories? I mean, what do you keep? Mm -hmm. What's the difference between a donate and a resell? Mm -hmm. I think that we innately, especially by touching something, visually looking at it, removing them from each pile, it helps you identify. You might pick one shirt up and immediately know, I love this piece. I wear it all the time. I feel great. And then you might pick up another shirt and think, well, and you start to make excuses. And that's when you can kind of stop and ask yourself, why am I trying to justify keeping it? What's the value this has in my life? And, you know, if it's a category in which, well, I've spent a lot of money on it, I don't want to just donate it, then it perhaps goes in a category if you have the capacity and time to then try to resell it and figuring out what those next steps are for reselling. How much time will it take up? How easy it is? Would someone be interested in this item? Jane Brody, who writes the health column for the New York Times, actually wrote a column just recently, I don't know if you've read it, where she decluttered and she talked about how dangerous clutter is, you know, specifically for an older person. I feel like we've been reading Jane for such a long time. We've all grown up with her and watched her age. But, you know, she's at the point where people are tripping over things and clutter gets dangerous. Mm -hmm. But she also talked about this idea of donating and of clearing out just because you're making making space in your brain. And the comments on this article flew so 
quickly, so mm-hmm. fast and furiously. And one of the ones that sort of resonated with me was from somebody who said, please, please, please don't donate things that should be thrown away. You know, you know if things are past their prime. You're making work for those of us at Goodwill and the Salvation Army by bringing stuff to us that then we just have to throw away. Absolutely. So, so what should get really thrown out? I think it's also the mentality of if you were out there trying to buy secondhand or going through donations, is this something that you would want? Is this something that you would think was a value to repurchase from someone else? And I think having that mentality certainly helps. Anything that has holes in it, stains that won't come out, dirty, broken, those are not things that people can enjoy. Those are not things that'll get a second life enjoyment from someone else. And those are the things that you should look for. At the end of the day, it's it's about being considerate and it's about being intentional, not only with the editing process and getting organized, but the intentionality of what you're choosing to let go of, whether it is donate or just trashing. And if it is trashing, being intentional about what that is and what that looks like for you in your household. When you're talking about reselling. You know, this is something I've been thinking about lately because I feel like I, and I don't think I'm alone, have just gone through a style shift during COVID, Mm -hmm. right? My weight hasn't really changed, but what I'm comfortable in because I've spent so much time in my house has changed. And right before COVID, I had terrible timing on this. Like the month before COVID, I had all of these speaking engagements coming up and I hired a stylist, which I've never done before and went on this shopping binge and bought clothes for the stage. And I'm looking at them and I'm thinking, I bought a friggin' pink suit. I am not wearing, it's a pantsuit. I'm not wearing that. I'm just, (laughs) I am not, it's not bright pink. It's sort of that muted, sort of peachy pink. I am never going to wear that, ever going to wear that. But it was not inexpensive. It still has tags on it. And I guess I should resell it, but I can't look at it anymore. Mm Mm-hmm. I think that those items are the perfect in terms of, okay, I'm not going to wear this. It doesn't represent where life is headed, at least in the near future. So it's about setting that time aside and being intentional with, okay, I'm going to set aside the 30 minutes or 40 minutes to take the photos necessary or get the bag necessary to start the process to resell these items. But I think that you touched on something that so many people can kind of overlook is taking that moment to ask yourself that question or even being subconsciously aware of, okay, clearly my style has shifted. Clearly I'm headed in a different direction. Therefore my belongings and what I choose to surround myself should also shift. And allowing that, right? Allowing yourself. It's okay that our styles have shifted during Mm -hmm. this crazy period in our history, you know, allowing yourself a little grace to get through the fact that maybe you want to wear different things and that's okay. Mm -hmm. When we're looking at, outside the closet, the rest of the bedroom, what things tend to pile up there? Do we hold on to linens too long? Do we hold on to (laughs) towels too long? Do we hold on to too much memorabilia? What should we be getting rid of? Sure. I would say, I mean, everyone's a little different, especially in terms of just their family dynamic, whether they have a partner or a large family, they entertain a lot. I would say the clutter kind of really builds up more importantly when there's a lack of systems. So it's about being intentional on the front end because things can always pile up. Life can always get busy. 
but it's about having those systems and intentionality in place so that when things do get messy and pile up, it takes you 20 minutes to tidy up and put those things away versus it takes hours and then you feel overwhelmed and then it snowballs and all the clutters around you because you just don't have a grasp. You're behind and your clutter and your items have control over you versus the other way around, which is you know, what we can all hope for any of us, right, is that we have the intentionality and we have the control over our belongings. So like so many people, I binged the home edit on Netflix, (laughs) right? And you come away from that show thinking systems have to be expensive. Julie Morgenstern is an old friend of mine. She's been a guest on this show before, and she's been organizing for many years these days. She's organizing our time, which I love, and our Mm. productivity, which is so important. But I remember years ago, she said, the first thing that everybody does is go out and spend $200 at the container store, and you don't have to spend $200 at the container store to have systems. So how can we have systems on the cheap? Yes. Well, I think that there's a misconception in organizing right now, especially when you have shows like The Home Edit and Marie Kondo and all, you know, it's visually so exciting to see the transformation. But I think what people kind of forget is that organizing, there's not one size fits all. There might be some where organizing, they want minimalism. They don't want as much stuff. There might be some where they just want their time back. They don't want to keep searching for things. They want to save their money. They don't want to keep rebuying things they may already own or they just can't find. So I think that the misconception currently is that to be organized means to be perfect. And I think, you know, what what my company really strives to do is that we're creating systems and organization that are based on people's lifestyles and habits so that they can maintain it long after we're gone because it represents something that they'll be able to keep up with and that's a part of their personalities. And so when you're going in it with that mindset, when you're keeping yourself realistic about your habits, it's a lot easier to create systems and not feel the need to then go out and buy all these products, right? We're repurposing shoe boxes or we're editing first. So when you thought you might need 10 bins, you actually only need three. So you're buying for the things you actually have once you have a better handle of how many things you have. And I think that's really the key on not spending $200 or thousands of dollars on all these plastic things that you may not end up needing all or at all. Can you explain to me the psychology of bins, right? <laughs> I mean, all, organizers love bins, right? And I sometimes <laughs> love bins, but sometimes I just need like a big old drawer, right? Sure. Like, <laughs> I have yet to like outfit my refrigerator with bins. I just put all the yogurt in a pile. Yes. What is it about bins? I think it's really popular right now to contain everything. (laughs) And I think that's kind of behind the whole bin craze. It's like everything, everything needs a system. But I think the pendulum swings both ways, right? A few years ago, it was Marie Kondo and nothing needs anything, right? It was all very minimalistic and things can be loosely placed and displayed and enjoy your belongings. And now it's everything needs a bin, it needs to be color coded. And I'm hoping that it kind of evens itself out. But I think that that's with anything in life, anything that feels popular in a home space, is that things will catch on. And our hopes, at least when working with clients, is that we're finding the right tools for them versus them fitting into whatever our definition of organization might be. 
Are there things that you always contain? Are there are there <laughs> some things that just get unruly, like cords, right? Cords drive sure. me crazy. Are there things that you, no matter what room you're in, and for everybody who's waiting to the kitchen to hear about the kitchen, I will come to the kitchen in a yeah. second, but are there certain things that you always think have to be contained? I think it, it quite honestly depends on the person and the items and how likely they are to put it back. <laughs> You know, if there's someone who's like, I'm more visual, I want it out. Great. Well, then we're not going to bend it up for you. But I think when you talk about cords or things that can get really unruly, whether it's like hair products or hair ties, bobby pins, things like that. I think in certain situations, yes. If it's not contained and it's going to make your life harder in order to get ready in the morning or find something with ease, then I think that's when containment makes sense whether it's containment in a bin or even containment as simple as like a lazy Susan where you can access things really easily. And that can be in a bathroom, in a kitchen, in a playroom. Gotta love a good lazy Susan. I would say I'm more lazy Susan than I am Ben personally. Hey, everybody, it's Jean. If you want to continue unlocking your potential, then you should also check out Think Fast, Talk Smart, produced by our friends at Stanford Graduate School of Business. Think Fast, Talk Smart is the Webby Award-winning best business podcast that received nearly 50 million downloads. It's the number one career podcast in 95 countries, so you know it's worth your time. Each week, host and Stanford lecturer Matt Abraham sits down with experts to discuss the best tips to hone and develop your communication skills from making small talk that leaves a big impression to keeping your nerves in check while speaking, to being more persuasive. Whether you're working on your elevator pitch or planning an important meeting, strong communication skills are critical to business. All that and so much more is available on Think Fast, Talk Smart. Listen every Tuesday wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube. Dive into the heart of crime with Foul Play Crime Series. Immerse yourself in the most perplexing cases where each twist and turn is more baffling than the last. With riveting storytelling and detailed analysis, Foul Play brings the unsolved and unexplained to life, captivating your imagination. Listen to Foul Play Crime Series now, where every story is a puzzle waiting to be solved. I'm talking with Anna Bauer, home organization and decluttering expert, the kitchen. The kitchen, (laughs) particularly now when like everybody needs to buy that beautiful or everybody seems to have on their list that beautiful Dutch oven and (laughs) all the different wooden spoons made out of olive wood and fruit wood. And I mean, I love to cook, but I really try to keep my kitchen from getting too cluttered. Mm -hmm. What are your favorite tricks? (laughs) I really love kitchens because they're like puzzles. And I think oftentimes we all feel really stumped with how we can piece them together in a way that's going to function for everyday life, not just those one-off holiday occasions. So I think one of the things to really think about is what you truly use in a household. Are you people who bake a lot? And if so, what type of real estate do you want that to take in your kitchen? If you're someone who only seasonally bakes, then maybe that can take less real estate. Maybe that goes up high. Another thing to keep in mind, which I feel like is a problem area for a lot of people, is Tupperware. 
thinking about where you store your Tupperware. I feel like oftentimes clients and other individuals are storing their Tupperware in an upper cabinet when really Tupperware should be low just because there's so many pieces. It's easier to organize it and keep it tidy if it's in a lower compartment. Even spices. I think it's really easy for that to become an area where you're wasting time and money because you think you don't have garlic powder, but you do. It's just in the back. And then you end up, let's say, when you do a little kitchen edit, you realize you have three different garlic powders. And that just is wasteful on so many different fronts. So it's kind of, again, checking in what you use every day, where is it located. And that really just kind of helps the flow of your kitchen and helps when you're going to the grocery store, you can easily kind of shop your kitchen beforehand. That way you're truly only getting what you really need. I love this because it's making me feel really smart because my Tupperware is low for the first time in a very, very long time. And I took the very few spices that I use every day and I put them in a cabinet, not in my pantry, but actually right next to my stove. So my olive oil, my red wine vinegar, my salt, my pepper, and maybe the balsamic is there. And it's right there and it's easy. I can reach for it and I can put it away. You know, a lot of people downsized this year. Mm -hmm. A lot of people are living a little bit more simply after the pandemic. How does your advice differ if somebody's living in a couple of rooms rather than in a whole house? I don't think it changes much because the, the idea of being intentional and editing our space and being in control of our space is pretty universal. Whether you live in a larger home, a smaller home, you've downsized, or you've you know, gotten a larger space. Maybe there was a COVID rate that you locked in. I think that the mentality should always be being very aware and intentional. I feel like I'm going to overuse that word, but I think it's, it is such a powerful word and encompasses a lot of what we do in organizing our clients. When we tackle the living room, I think the biggest challenge for people is judging the shelves, right? <laughs> we only have so many decorative shelves, right? And we have things that are meaningful to us. We have things maybe that have been given to us or pictures or things that we picked up on a trip or a vacation. And yet we want these few shelves that we have to make a statement and to be, you know, beautiful, but not the kind of beautiful where we get tired of looking at them every day. Mm-hmm. So how do you judge? Sure. Similar process to even just organizing, figuring out what our categories are, what is taking up eye-level real estate versus what can go higher, what can be stored, what's seasonal. And I think kind of also rethinking how we incorporate and repurpose some of those keepsakes. I feel like for things that we love, we sometimes don't do a good job in a household of showing those pieces because maybe we feel like, it. oh, it doesn't go with our decor. It wouldn't look good with the rest of these books. So I think also being kind of mindful of, okay, maybe I can repurpose this tchotchke or, you know, this candle I got in Europe in another way. Maybe it can hold some flowers or dried flowers on the shelf and that way I can showcase it once I've, you know, burned the candle. It's, again thinking through what are the things you truly want to see that make you happy versus things that you've kind of dragged from home to home just for the sake of it. Do you do your books by color? Do you do your books by author? How My husband and I have had big fights about this, so answer <laughs> carefully. Everyone's a little different. And again, that goes back to getting organized in a way that's going to suit your habits and lifestyle. So we organize by color. We can organize by color and author, organize by genre, it really kind of depends on what you like and what your preference is. I personally still love a good color-coded 
bookshelf, but I definitely understand the appeal of being able to find what you need by genre. This has been so much fun for me. Thank you so much for doing this. If you were to leave our listeners with your top three tips for just starting the year off feeling fresh, what would they be? I would say the one thing I would suggest is being able to, when you're thinking about getting organized, don't let it be this thing that overwhelms you. It can be something that it's in a small space. If you're wanting to organize your closet but feel so overwhelmed by it, start with your sock drawer. Let the little wins motivate you to then finish the project. Another thing that I would say is have an end goal of, okay, once I've organized, these are the exact places I'm going to donate. These are the exact places I plan to resell. And this is where, you know, I'm purposely going to do it on this day because I know the trash day is the next day. Because oftentimes you've done all this work and then you end with all these piles next to your door of like things you're going to resell, things you're going to donate, and they never make it out. What are your favorite resell and donate places? So I think if you're going to resell, let's say, for example, clothing, I think ThreadUp is great. The Real Real is great. And Poshmark is great. If you're looking to resell, let's say, furniture, I think Facebook Marketplace is great. I think Apartment Therapy Bazaar is really awesome. Macari, which also you can do clothing as well. And if you're in New York and Pennsylvania, kind of the Northeast or California, Apartment Deco is also another great resource for selling any type of furniture. And then if you're looking to donate, I think it's great. There's the big ones like Goodwill and Salvation Army. But if you go, there's a site called donationtown.org and you can put in your zip code and it populates all local charities that do free pickups. That can be the last thing that you like don't have enough car space or let's say you don't have a car. How are you going to get all these donations out? That's a great resource to look for places that can actually come and pick up your donations for you. Oh, that's amazing. That's a mm-hmm. new one on me. I've not heard that one. We'll put it in the show notes. And your third and final tip? Similar to something we talked about, you know, getting organized does not have to be expensive. You could have binder clips, some tape and a Sharpie. And those are all the tools you really need to organize your electronics, to label your pantry. A lot of the things in your house can easily be contained with things you might already own. So don't be intimidated thinking that, you know, your space has to look Pinterest perfect. It just has to be perfect for your life. Thank you so much for giving us permission not to be perfect. Anna Bauer, where can we find you and more of you? Sure. So we have plenty of other tips and tricks on our website at sortedbyanna.com, or you can follow us along on Instagram at sortedbyanna. I hope you'll come back. Yes, I'm happy to. It's one of my favorite subjects. So (laughs) Awesome. And we will be right back with Catherine and your mailbag. Catherine will join us in just a sec for our mailbag, but let me remind everyone that her money is supported by BCU. BCU is a credit union that helps its members feel confident and assured with the peace of mind that comes from making smart financial decisions. Visit bcu.org to learn ways to secure your financial future. Hey, Catherine, good to see you. Good to see you, Jean. And I really need to hear more about this pink suit that you bought. 
You know, I know it sounds more hideous than it is. It's really, I mean, I'm not a particularly pink girl, as you probably know, because you rarely see me wear it. I feel like I have trouble with my makeup whenever I try to wear pink because I feel like my face clashes with my clothing. But I, I, this stylist was very hot on this pink suit and I definitely let her talk me into it. And I think had 2020 rolled into the kind of spring where I was doing these events on stage, I would have worked it into the rotation and I would have gotten comfortable in it and I probably would have really liked wearing it. And now I just don't know what to do with it. I really, you know, it's a lot of pink. I don't know. I could see it being one of those things that like lives there for years. And we know that when you're going to consign or sell clothing, you're much better off doing it when it is still fairly new. Unless it's like something really vintagey or something really high-end designer that it's going to hold its value. And this is not that. This was mid-level, and I don't think it's going to see the light of day, quite frankly. Well, I hear you on spring. You know, I think that springtime is a time to roll out with colors like that. And they always say that jewel tones for women can be very empowering, like your amethyst and your ruby and your emerald and your sapphire. So I definitely see a place for those colors, for sure. I'm good in those colors, right? I do You're well. great in those colors. I'm good in those colors. Brunettes tend to be good in those colors. But I'm good in those colors, like, I'll wear a shirt that's those colors, like, with black pants or a black skirt. I'm not necessarily, I mean, maybe I would wear a dress, but maybe not. Maybe not. So I lived in New York way too long. I got a lot of black in my closet. I have a lot of white in my closet. I like white. So I've decided camel is not really my color. I get that. I get that. It's not my color either, and we're both brunettes. But living in New York probably taught you a lot about minimalist needs and and how to organize a closet and how to store things efficiently. I mean, your house is very well organized every time I'm there. It is now, but I just moved in. So, you know, we... (laughs) (laughs) I've given myself a little bit of a break right now. Love that. Let's take some questions. Yeah. Our first question comes to us from Judy. She writes, Hi, Jean. Thanks so much for all you do to educate us on finances. I have a question about long-term care insurance. My biggest, maybe irrational fear is that my husband will get sick and drain our entire retirement account, leaving me broke at 80. We are 56 and 58 and have just shy of $2 million in retirement savings and a house worth $500,000 with a mortgage of $60,000 to be paid off before we retire. We have no other debt and about $50,000 in non-retirement savings. My husband has a pension of $4,000 a month when he retires. For households with over $2 million in assets, I've read that you're better off self-insuring for long-term care, but what does that mean? I'm assuming that means we pay all expenses out of pocket, but what happens to me or him if I get sick if we use up all the money? Are there other ways to protect some assets? Long-term care insurance is so expensive. What are the other options? Thank you. Judy, it's a great question. And yes, that is typically the advice that people, including me, give, that if we look at people's assets, if you've got you know, less than 
a million dollars in assets, so half a million dollars in assets, and you need extended nursing home or at-home care, you're going to very quickly go through your money and you'll qualify for Medicaid, which unlike Medicare does step in to pay long-term care costs. If you have more than a couple million dollars, and maybe we should adjust that number upward a little bit, you will be able to invest your own money and use the proceeds of that money to fund your nursing home care or at-home care. In between is where long-term care insurance or some sort of long-term care insurance starts to make sense. But I agree with you. I think we're living so much longer that in particular, those years at the very end of life get scary because if we do have an extended bout of illness or Alzheimer's or something, we could spend down all the money and we could end up not necessarily broke at 80 because we'll have social security and we'll have the house, but uncomfortable at 80. There are a couple of other solutions. One is what's sometimes referred to as longevity insurance. What it really is is a deferred annuity. And so you take a chunk of money somewhere around the age of 60, so almost where you are right now, and you use it to buy an annuity, a stream of income that you won't turn on until age 80. Because you put the money away now, you have to put away less money. It has more time to grow. And that means your payout at age 80 will be substantial. Now, the risk with an annuity like this is that if you don't make it till 80, you lose that money in most cases. There are some annuities that are structured, so you won't lose all the money, but then you'll get a lower payout. So the real way that economists like to use it is as insurance, longevity insurance. And so you may want to look into that. You would talk to a life insurance or a long-term care insurance agent about that. The other thing that you can look at is buying a smaller sum of long-term care insurance, figuring that you'll be able to self-insure for some but maybe not for all of your needs. And because you're buying a lesser amount, you'll spend less to get it. It's cheaper to buy a policy on two lives rather than on one. So on you and your husband combined typically rather than individually. And then I should tell you what I ended up doing, which was buying a life insurance policy. There are hybrid life insurance policies where you can essentially pay for a life insurance policy that has a bucket of benefits that can be used for long-term care, but if you don't need them for long-term care, then the benefit just passes along to your heirs. So companies, the same sort of companies that sell long-term care policies are selling these hybrids as well. I agree with you. I think having about $2 million in assets, it feels a little trepidatious. And you may want to, particularly if you want to continue to live the life that you've been living, you may want to look into some solution for down the road. But thanks so much for the question. It's a really good one. These things are so complicated. And I feel like it's great that there are so many possibilities out there. But then the number of possibilities, I feel like, also make these decisions more difficult. 
Yeah. And at some point you just say, okay, this may not be perfect, but this is what I'm going to do. Right. I mean, when I bought the long term care slash life insurance policy was a little more expensive than a regular life insurance policy, a little more expensive than a regular long term care insurance policy. But it was what I was comfortable with and could afford at the time. You know, I'll have this policy. It will be fully paid off in a couple of years. And if I feel like I need more, then I'll revisit But the time to look at these things is really in your 50s and early 60s, because after that, they just get way too expensive. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Jean. Mm -hmm. Our next question is from Heidi. She writes, Hello, Jean and Catherine. I've been listening to the Her Money podcast for many years, and I've often wondered how people come up with such excellent questions. I finally have a legitimate question for your mailbag. My long-term partner and I live together in a small mountain resort town in Idaho. We have no plans to marry and have separate finances. Sometime in the next year or two, assuming the chip shortage is resolved, we're looking to replace my 2008 Honda Civic with an all-electric or hybrid plug-in SUV. I love my Civic, but I'm over it when it comes to driving on snow-packed roads and not being able to access the best hiking trails in summer because of the rugged road conditions. I want an SUV. Meanwhile, my partner is very climate-focused and says electric cars are spendy, but it's time to take the decarbonization plunge. Although I would have been willing to buy a used non-electric SUV, I tend to agree with him if money isn't an issue. A true mustachian, my partner prefers to bike whenever possible. Okay, I don't know what that means. Okay, a mustachian is a follower of a personal finance expert named Mr. Money Mustache. And he's kind of very fire-oriented. He's very focused on financial freedom. So not spending a lot in order to live the life that you want to live. Okay, okay, I like that. I'm going to do some more research. She continues... I, on the other hand, believe owning a car equals freedom. I don't drive a lot. I've been proudly working from home since 2013, but I don't ever want to be in a position where our relationship fails and I don't have a car. If and when we replace my Civic, I want the car to be in my name, and that's where things get tricky. I have about $15,000 that I'm willing to put toward a vehicle, plus another $5,000 with the eventual sale of my Civic. $20,000 total is the absolute most I'm willing to spend. Electric SUVs look to run anywhere from 40000 to 65000 and my partner said he'll cover the remaining costs. He has the cash reserves, but he's concerned about gift taxes. Rather than paying for the car outright, he plans to give me the cash up to the gift tax limit over the next two years, and I'll pay to insure the car. So many questions. Number one, it looks like the gift tax limit is 15000 a year. How does the limit even work when you're in a not official domestic partnership? I'm wondering because we share household expenses and are always passing money back and forth. How does that money factor into the limit? That money shouldn't factor into the limit at all. And Catherine, let me just jump in. She's got a number of questions here. I can just tell by the way you're rolling. So let me just tackle them back and forth. Yes, the gift tax limit works the same for everybody. Basically, you are allowed to give $15,000 to any person that you want, regardless of being related to them or in a domestic partnership with them or not. 
So if he wants to give you $15,000 for 2021 to go toward this car, he should do it right now. And if he wants to give you $15,000 for 2022 to go to this car, he should do it anytime after January 1st, and then you can just park that money. Okay, fantastic. Thank you. Her second question is, what if my $20,000 with his $30,000 isn't enough to cover the cost of the vehicle we choose? He's fine with the car being in my name, and he's willing to pay more to fulfill his electric car dreams, but he doesn't want to trigger any tax complications. So car prices right now are crazy, but I suspect that you should be able to find a vehicle, and maybe you go with a used electric SUV that will come in those parameters. You can borrow the rest of the money, and that's probably what I would do. If your 20 with his 30 isn't enough, head to your local credit union. They are known for having really good rates on auto loans. Borrow the small amount of money that you need to cover the difference, and then if he wants to give you enough to repay that loan, in 2023, let him do it then, and you can make the payments in the meanwhile. Amazing. Her third question is, as a non-married couple, should we consider buying the car together in both of our names? And is that even possible? Other than determining who gets the car if we split up, are there any other issues we would encounter? I have no problem sharing a car title. I just don't want it to be in his name only. So you absolutely can co-own a car. The way to do it would be as joint tenants with rights of survivorship. And that way, if one of you were to die, the other would own the car without having to deal with probate, despite the fact that you're not married. It would be very quick. It would be very easy. You could totally do that. I am hearing reluctance, though, in your letter. I'm hearing a little bit of reluctance to do this jointly, even though at this point in your story, you're saying that you're okay with it. So just explore your own feelings. He's not asking to be the joint owner of this car. And so if he's not asking, I wouldn't necessarily offer it. Love that advice and totally agree. Her last question is, are there any other financing options we should consider? Neither one of us is interested in taking out a loan or leasing a vehicle. I'm not suggesting that you take out a loan for the whole vehicle. I'm suggesting that you just take out a bridge loan to get you from that 20000 that you can afford to spend to the price of the vehicle that you want. So look at it as a short-term solution and don't worry too much about adding this to to your budget in the short term. It should really be something where you pay it off in 2023 when he gives you that money. Amazing. Thank you so much, Jean, for the great advice. Oh, of course. Thank you so much for writing. Thank you for all of the amazing detail. We just have the best listeners on the planet, don't we, Catherine? We really do. We really do. And I can't let us know what kind of car you get because I really... I'm so intrigued by the idea of an electric SUV. I feel like that's the way of the future. So let us know how you like it. And let us know how you like driving in the snow. (laughs) 
And in today's Thrive, the foods you should buy in bulk in order to save money. I know, I know, sounds a little counterintuitive because we're talking about paring down. But in fact, there are some things that still make sense to buy a lot of when you buy them. Maybe you just don't buy them so often. The pandemic has changed a lot about how people shop and eat and live. And so what are the food staples that last the longest when you buy ahead. At hermoney.com, we've got a rundown on exactly which products will save you most where buying in bulk. The first is bread. We all want fresh bread for our morning toast or our lunchtime grilled cheese, but we also know the reality that fresh bread doesn't last. But storing bread in the freezer makes it last for months. When you're ready to use it, just take out a couple of slices, leave it on the counter to defrost, or throw it in the toaster. By the way, that's what I do with my bagels as well. I just take out a half a bagel. Bulk proteins are also on the list. Everything from a family pack of chicken thighs to a double pack of ground beef can help you save substantially on your per pound rate. In general, Family packs at wholesale outlets like Costco, they can be half the price per pound as what you'll find for smaller portion packages. Olive oil. Olive oil is one pantry staple that can get pretty pricey, especially when snagging an emergency bottle, i.e. a small one, at your local market. So buying this in larger tins can end up being an excellent value. Just make sure you keep it in a cool, dark place to prolong its shelf life. Broths and stocks. It seems like almost every recipe these days calls for some. And while you can make your own, I don't, by the way, because it is incredibly time consuming. So it's great just to have a few boxes on hand. You can also look into buying jars of the super concentrated stock substance called Better Than Bullion, which keeps in your fridge for a year. You just add your water to make your own delicious broth. And yes, they do sell it at Costco. Thank you so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks to Anna Bauer for sharing her incredible insight on how to get organized, throw things out, and make 2022 our best year yet. I am thinking of all of you as we head into this beautiful new year, and I can't wait to hear from you soon. If you like what you hear, I hope that you'll subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. I am truly going to miss saying that. And also our sponsor, BCU. We record this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper, and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Thanks for joining us, and we'll talk soon.
Have you ever wished that you had a direct line to your pediatrician to ask all the questions that constantly crop up while parenting? We sure have. That's why we launched the Bites of Health podcast. Every morning, we'll answer a commonly asked pediatric question in five minutes or less. You can tune in while you're making your second cup of coffee or from the school drop-off line. So be sure to tune in to Bites of Health, streaming now.